G'day mate, Forty here, been a little under the weather this week, so I've uh, got sick Monday night, so Tuesday I was down for the count, I, I couldn't even watch Netflix for more than an hour, I'd have to like go back, lie down again, but by, by Wednesday and today I've just been able to watch unlimited amounts of uh, Netflix or movies, anything else, and so I'm like too sick to, to be productive. Uh, so I've just been watching Secrets of Playboy. It's this, uh, I think it's a 10-part A&E series, and it's really good. It's really good, The Secrets of Playboy. And, and as I'm watching it, here's what I'm experiencing. So I don't like feminism. Feminism is not a happy fit with my personality. I don't find feminists to be happy, joyful, you know, free, ebullient, larger-than-life, funny, uh, flexible, tolerant, you know, pleasant people to be around, all right? Feminism and feminists don't connote any of those things for me. I don't have this wellspring of wonderful experiences with, with feminists. I just don't have that. So pretty much my every experience with feminism and with feminists has been negative. But... When you, when you take feminism on the one hand, with which I've never had a positive experience, then natural male sexual nature on the other hand, I, I, I realize that feminists have some important things to say, even though I don't buy, say, the, the argument that you know, men and women are basically the same. Uh, it's just a society that has programmed them, them differently. So I, I don't subscribe to almost any of the, the tenets of, of feminism to the extent that I understand it. But when, when you compare it with just raw male sexual predatory nature when, when it gets unleashed, uh, society will collapse, all right? So I don't like the arguments of feminism, I don't like the philosophy of, of feminism. I don't like the effects of feminism on women. It doesn't seem to make them happier, uh, more pleasant to be around, more joyful, more, more tolerant, more, more easygoing. But you can't have men just trying to hit and screw everything that they can. And so uh, college campuses, for example, they have been you know, a hotbed of sexual experimentation since uh, I presume the 1960s, and so now we've got this this feminist-led uh, backlash that it, it is requiring consent for you know every step you make. That you know apparently if you try to if you kiss someone against her consent, that's sexual assault, right? And uh, I'm not sure. I probably kissed some women with. Or, I mean, in, in every sexual interaction I've ever had or physical interaction I've had, 90%, I've had to be the, the instigator. And so I have put my hands on women, and there have been times when they did not appreciate it. And so realizing that if I touch a woman against her consent, that that's like sexual assault, I mean, that's really hard for me to hear. But maybe I need to hear it. Like, maybe this is what I've experienced. This is what I've found out at age 55, that there are all sorts of really painful, disagreeable, distasteful 
uh, truths about life that go completely against my nature, completely go against everything that I believe in and everything that I feel and everything that I experience, but nevertheless have powerful elements of, of truth. So I don't like feminism. It's not congenial to me. It doesn't seem to make people better. But when you, you compare it to the world of Playboy or just college campuses until the backlash of feminism and the Me Too movement, like the Me Too movement has certainly got its extremes and it seems to have gone too far. But like, how did someone like Bill Cosby just get away with drugging and raping women for five decades and, and still be known as America's dad? So... With feminists leading the Me Too movement, feminists leading the backlash against Playboy culture, leading the backlash against pornography, leading the, the backlash against you know sexual experimentation on college campuses and, and hookup culture, and they're doing they're doing something that's inevitable because society simply cannot continue where where men. They're just allowed to, you know, just have a crack at, you know, any any woman that they, you know, just at least have a go, all right? I mean, think how highly distasteful that's going to be for, for women. And so, yeah, I'm watching Secrets of Playboy and recognizing that this is serious so far. It's making many trenchant criticisms of Playboy. And Playboy has generally had a really polished, you know, false front put forward by the media. And I wrote about this. Like, I wrote about the... You know, the weird relationship between Hugh Hefter and his daughter who was running the, the Playboy empire, right? Uh, there's, no, there's no surprise on my part that there's an enormous downside to the, the sex industry. Hey, Luke, what's happening? You're coming back to Oz from Jim Bowden. I don't know. I've been sick all week, so I'm not, uh, not making any big decisions right now. <laughs> this is my, I think this is about my first video in a week. I've just been, been down for the count. But uh, I, I, I watch this series and, and, and there's always the arguments that, you know, I'm doing this for the girls and I'm doing this for the women. And so you hear this special pleading on behalf of women. And I, I don't like that, that feminist approach whereby if a woman regrets sex afterwards that she consented to as an adult, that somehow that that's, uh, that that's rape, all right, or this... this you know, really prevalent notion among many women that that uh, essentially they're not responsible for their choices. That if, if they've done something wrong, that that's, that there's a man to blame for it somewhere. Okay, so that that victim culture of feminism, I, I'm I'm not a fan of. So whereby you know adult women go out and have consensual affairs with you know powerful men, and uh, and then they they want to play the victim and they don't want to take any responsibility. So. Like Holly Madison was was quite interesting in this series, and uh, I photographed her many times, and uh, so she she makes a really good case. But uh, you know, no one forced her to to be a Playboy playmate, right? She she signed up for that, and so you know, to what extent do do women have to take responsibility for their own choices? If a woman wants a kiss from you, she doesn't want you to ask her for permission to give her a kiss. She'll expect you to know when it's okay and not okay to kiss her. Good point. So what about what about much of my non-neurotypical audience? That's, that's very confusing. What really helped me uh, was something I, I learned from the, the, the pickup artists, IOIs, Indicators of Interest. 
So once you get like three IOIs, then you can move in for a kiss or you can ask a woman out and you're not going to get knocked back. And so I found that particularly sweet. Just uh, th that, that wonderful clarity that, that I, I learned from, from the pickup artist. You know, look for those indicators of interest. And then once you get like at least three of them, then you can, you can make a move. And if you don't make a move that, you know, a woman's going to be disappointed and she, she may feel bad. But if you make a move when she doesn't want it, then she's going to feel really angry. So anyway, um, so I'm watching Secrets of Playboy and I'm thinking, compared to predatory male nature, like feminism is an essential course corrective. And it doesn't really matter that I, if I don't like a philosophy and I don't like the adherence of a philosophy and it feels unpleasant to me and it also doesn't matter if I can philosophically pick it apart and I can see all sorts of moral problems with it. If it's inherent in life, Right, if it's an inherent backlash to predatory male nature, without this backlash, society will not perpetuate itself. You won't have civilization. Then, then you know, feminism may be woven into reality, and so there are all sorts of parts of reality that I may not be thrilled with. So, for example, the pornography industry. You know, I have to admit, from interviewing hundreds of people in the pornography industry, there were quite a few people who I interviewed who I objectively, to the extent of my knowledge, I could not see that they'd suffered harm from being in the pornography industry. Uh, I'm someone who believes in God, but I find a tremendous amount of wisdom and, and necessary correctives to a religious perspective from atheists. And I'm someone who's right-wing, like all my tendencies are right-wing, I believe, that uh, different peoples have different gifts, that hierarchy is normal, natural, and, and healthy. Uh, I'm, I'm at ease with, you know, an unequal distribution of uh, wealth and power. I have all these right-wing tendencies, but I have to admit, I often find, you know, very thought-provoking and cogent uh, rebuttals to, to, to life that are often very uncomfortable and unpleasant to me, but coming from the left, and I have to think, wow, this is, this is real, and this is making a good point, even though I don't like it. And, uh, and then, you know, various times in my life, I've been very rah-rah one particular religion, but at, at any time, there are all sorts of religions have different gifts, right? The gifts of Christians and Christianity are not identical to the gifts of Jews and of Muslims. I don't really know much about Islam, and I don't, you know, I can't speak about how wonderful segments of it are. But there are various forms of Christianity that produce, you know, beautiful gifts. And so, watching this series, The Secrets of Playboy, and like this idyllic uh, Playboy existence for for some people. Right for for other people or the very people who experience it as idyllic later experienced it as an oppressive cult. So it just humbles me to understand that you know when people go through different phases of their life or different people experience the same thing, it can be a completely different uh, different experience. Two people go through exactly identical experience, but because they're different people, they they experience it completely differently, and so. Yeah, just opening my mind up to, I, can't, I don't want to say the wisdom of feminism, but I don't know, have greater empathy for, for their arguments against, the, say, the predatory uh, sexual nature of men, to have greater sympathy for the, for, the, for the skeptics, right? There's a big, you know, atheist skeptic movement, uh, Michael Shermer, 
the what uh, decoding the gurus podcast. Uh, how much I, I'm learning from the, the skeptics movement and the the atheist movement. Um, I'm rah rah about my Orthodox Judaism that I converted to, but yet there's so much beauty and profundity and wisdom that I, I learned from Christians. I, I, I got to admit, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Arab suffering or, or Muslim suffering, but I've had um, some wonderful interactions with Muslims. And, and they were funny, right? and they were pretty, and they were female, and, and we got along so well. And you know, I don't really picture Islam as this uh, faith, this, this way of life that, that creates you know, great cutting-edge humor, but... Uh, but I, I, I'm getting to experience it. So, so many things that are kind of antithetical to, to where I'm at in life now or to my philosophy or to my nature uh, as I'm just sitting here sick and watching all these documentaries. It's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Well, that's just woven into reality however much I don't like it. And I don't have to like something to recognize that it's it's part of reality and so yeah getting sick is humbling right you know my whole agenda for this for this week is just you know has to be set aside haven't been able to accomplish anything this is the first video i've made in, in in about 10 days and so you know getting sick humbles you not being able to accomplish anything humbles you uh watching these documentaries with points of view that are not philosophically congenial to me but still I recognize as an important part of reality. So humility is accepting reality. And when you refuse to accept reality, you get humiliated. And so I would much rather <laughs> go through life without, without so much humiliation. Shouldn't have taken the vax. Well, the, the uh, vaccines for COVID, you know, do not promise that you'll never get sick. All right what they, they do promise is to cut down the amount of hospitalization and death. And there is very strong evidence that uh, if, you, if you're vaccinated and boosted, that you're about 140th, 150th as likely to go to hospital or to die. So living with the virus for Australians is taking some getting used to the article in the New York Times today. Australia once stamped out every COVID outbreak. Now it's done with all that. The policy U-turn and the soaring case numbers caught many off guard. Well, look, there's an appropriate response to a pandemic at one point, And then when the facts change, you change afterwards. In Australia, public opinion has usually been ahead of policy. And I assume that's how it's been throughout most of the Western world. So I know that most of my audience are dissidents. But the fact is, the majority of people in America and in Europe and Australia are supportive of even tougher measures against COVID than what we've had. So you may not like that, but those are the facts on the ground. Generally speaking, politicians have been following popular opinion. And popular opinion has been for stricter crackdowns, stricter lockdowns than what you've had. So Melbourne, Australian, so 95% of adults in Australia are vaccinated. So that doesn't mean you're going to be immune from getting COVID. It does mean you are substantially less likely to be hospitalized or to die. 
the coronavirus is now milder. This is the New York Times. It's the heart of summer. After a long year and a half of snap lockdowns and closed borders, Australia, the government says, is ready to live with the coronavirus, ready for the authorities to get out of people's lives and let them make their own health decisions. Hit the pub, enjoy life, spend some monies, some money. But many Australians, it seems, weren't ready. Yeah, so the, the majority of the population has been quite supportive of strict lockdown measures. And so now that the government is opening things up, a lot of Australians are lagging behind. And just because a government was for lockdowns at one point doesn't mean that it's going to be for lockdowns forever, right? There seems to be pretty substantial evidence that uh, lockdowns were prudent health policy and prudent economic policy at times with regard to an influenza like, like COVID. So when one state, South Australia, announced that it was ending extensive intensive contact tracing a facebook group popped up so people could do their own well the enthusiasm for that has has diminished so after australia's prime minister scott morrison declared lockdowns a thing of the past so many residents of its two biggest cities stayed inside anyway as omicron spiked that it was labeled a shadow lockdown yeah so whether the government officially pronounced lockdown policies or not people generally speaking abided by lockdowns whether or not it was stated government policy. Luke, are you going to Ottawa, Canada, in support of the truckers? So the truckers are uh, protesting vaccine mandates, and I don't have a position on vaccine mandates, but I'm not in support of the, the truckers. So I'm not on board with the truckers, like, yay, freedom. So I notice with my conservative friends, I asked them, you know, why they're so skeptical of the conventional wisdom with regard to COVID. And they say, and they say look, freedom's more important than, than saving lives. So I point out that policies in Australia probably played a significant role in, in reducing the COVID death rate in Australia to 150th of the per capita death rate of the United States. So I, I, that seems to me a pretty strong argument for Australian policies. And their response is, there are things more important than human life, like freedom. And I think there are sometimes things that are more important than freedom. There's no one value that is always preeminently more important than all other values. So freedom is one value. Safety is another value. Responsibility is another value. The economy is a value. Uh, you know, human flourishing is a value. There's no one moral value that is always transcendent above all other moral values. All moral values are in constant conflict they're always existing in a constellation with other values in different situations will determine you know which value should be preeminent luke will be reading the new york times in his hospice bed hooked up to a ventilator receiving his sixth booster telling us the vaccine is safe and effective <laughs> So th there are no there are no guarantees in life, all right. So I could get up here and be very pompous about any particular public policy or any particular health health policy. So for example, I was raised a vegetarian. I was raised a Seventh Day Adventist, and so two thirds of Seventh Day Adventists, like observant Seventh Day Adventists, are vegetarian. As a result of being a vegetarian for fifty five years, I have had extensive struggles with fatigue and depression and cognitive fuzziness, fogginess. 
All right. And according to my understanding of the studies, this is most likely related to the vegetarian diet. That those academic studies about the effects of vegetarianism, those studies that aren't carried out by people with an agenda to support vegetarianism, you know, show that there are very significant health downsides to being vegetarian. So from where I sit, from the way I understand my life experience, once I started taking the beef organ capsules, I had a tremendous return to health. Like my life was crushed by, by the vegetarianism that uh, I was raised with and developed as a habit. So, you know, some study could come out that could completely invalidate my position tomorrow. But that's my understanding of my both my life experience and my my understanding of the scientific literature as being uh, synthesized and presented by people like Nathan Kofnis. Luke, have you considered that you were sick for a week? Well, I got uh, I got vaccinated in March of 2021, and then I got boosted in September or October. And uh, I've uh, I've had many COVID tests, but I've never never tested positive. So death is a guarantee to life. We did ask to be we didn't ask to be born, but we're sure to die. Yes, we're all gonna we're all gonna die. So. You have an opportunity to live as fully and freely and as healthfully as possible, right? Don't, don't we all want that? Right? So, but we're all raised with, you know, in all likelihood, we've all been raised with the equivalent of the affliction of vegetarianism. Like, we, we all have, you know, some, some burden that we were raised with, some, some way of understanding the world that we took for granted as right. And, uh, and then upon reflection, we realize that this thing that we took for granted as being right and true and good and wholesome has constrained and crushed our life in, in some way. So I think about all the people who were raised religious and just hated it and just couldn't wait to, to get away. And you know, they've often gone on to live you know, very morally upstanding, you know, great lives. And other people who were raised secular and then in, in midlife, this is quite rare, but still some people who have been nothing but secular in midlife realize, oh, you know, I really need to embrace religion. So life is constantly humbling. You know, some people seem to benefit from some religion. Other people seem to benefit from less religion. So it's not, it's not shocking to me that uh, Australia has shifted its policies on Omicron or the United States has shifted its policies with, with regard to COVID. When, when the facts on the ground change, I would expect that the governments would, would change too. So Simon Benson is a doctor in Melbourne. He's been inundated with calls from patients unsure what to do after testing positive. You do realize the chat says that... Uh, the vax is at the experimental stage. It's not at the experimental stage. It's been thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly tested. We have no evidence for any vaccine that after people take it and there are no negative results, that suddenly negative results happen years down the line. We have no evidence for that ever. There ever been any negative results to any vaccination, they've happened immediately. So hundreds of millions of people have taken COVID vaccines without any negative results, and we have no evidence to believe that there could be any negative results down the line. So the COVID vaccines approved for use in Australia, in the United Kingdom, in the United States have been extensively, extensively vetted. 
it's it's just absolutely insane to be opposed to to COVID vaccination. So this doctor in Australia says that shift from COVID is the worst thing imaginable to suddenly it's okay. We just open the floodgates now. I think that's caused a lot of insecurity in people. Well, life causes insecurity in people. Like the incentives that we operate under are constantly shifting and changing. Like you may get a job which restricts your freedom of speech on social media. You may get a relationship that restricts your freedom of speech. You may lose a relationship and gain a whole new level of freedom of speech. We're all operating under constantly changing incentives. Take a look around at the state of human health in the 21st century. Yeah, we have doubled our lifespan in the last 120 years thanks to the globalist elites. Right? The globalist elites have given us vaccination, fluoridation, chlorination, uh, increased uh, sanitation. All right? We have dramatically increased lifespan. So it used to be that people died young of you know, very easily transmitted diseases from things like filth and sewers. And people were, were dying young for thousands and thousands of years from contagious diseases. We have largely restricted that. So now people primarily die from things like heart disease and cancer that take decades and decades and decades to, to kill you. So it used to be 120 years ago that the average life expectancy in, in the West was, was about uh, 35, 40 years. Right? Now we've doubled that thanks to those globalist elites. Is that the injection site you just arrived? I don't think so. I, I am itchy a lot. I've I kind of noticed it maybe the last four months. I, I get itchy a lot. I'm not sure it's hives. I'm wondering if it's my, my crystal light. Ah, Don Willis, good point. 40, you must simply let that plastic bottle go. If you need to reuse those containers, they need to be changed out after a week. Third world sickness is right there. <laughs> You're probably making a good point. But plastic bottles are so much more convenient than glass ones because, you know, I drop this. And, uh, you know, I throw this at the wall if I'm upset. And uh, that wouldn't work so well with, with a glass bottle. And, you know, I've been using these for, for decades and I've never noticed any, uh, any, any downside. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I have been really itchy. So it could be the Crystal Light uh, citrus drinks that, that I'm, I'm consuming. Or it could just be I'm, I'm at an increased level of anxiety, say, the last uh, four months. So I didn't take much with me to Australia, aside from my Crystal Light and my, uh, my chewing gum. But I did take my Purea Mother of All Creams. So as I start getting itchy, I often get itchy in the night, I just wake up and I just slather this... Uh, Purea Mother of All Creams. I found it on Amazon to you know, re reduce the itchiness. But uh, yeah, a lot of, lot, of, lot of itchiness over the last four months. It, it must, be, must be psychological. If you're vax positive, what do I think about natural immunity? I'm all for natural immunity, vaccine immunity, any way you can, you can increase your immunization in ways that serve you, I think is wonderful. With every advancement in healthcare, the human form will mutate itself to fill the new bizarre niche it allows for, says Bruce. Luke is the poster child for frequent vaccination. 
<laughs> Thank you for not saying that I'm the poster child for frequent urination. Uh, I mean, I'd much rather be the poster child for free, frequent vaccination. But uh, in, in my family, we simply can't walk past a, a public bathroom. Like, uh, it's, it's part of the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Uh, thirty percent of the population is obese. Yeah, I think it's more like forty percent or fifty percent, but still, we've got obese people, you know, living into their eighties. All right, we have doubled our lifespan in the last one hundred twenty years. You know, thanks to those globalist elites. High sugar makes you itch. Dry skin. Streaming on YouTube makes you itch too. Morbidly obese with a heart condition, diabetes, no problem. We have some injections for that. Well, obviously, it'd be better if people took better care of themselves so that they're not morbidly obese with a heart condition and diabetes. But we don't really know that much about what causes heart disease. So the recommendations of like heart surgeons and, and various health societies are constantly changing. You know, fat, bad, fat, good, saturated fat, bad, unsaturated fat, good. It's all constantly changing. We don't really know that much about the mechanisms of heart disease and cancer. And we're never going to eradicate cancer. All right. So people are going to die, we may be able to, you know, lift the, the average, you know, life expectancy a few years. But uh, it's hard to know definitively, you know, what diets have what effect on health, because how are you going to test them over a long period of time? All you can do is take the diets that people report, but you can't just keep people in a laboratory so that you can have control of what people actually eat. We have a public health industry now that has our best interests in mind. The public health industry has our best interests in mind as much as the sports industry or the gambling industry or the religion industry, all right? But uh, where are people living longer than in first world industrialized countries, all right? So if we've doubled lifespan in the last 120 years, to me that seems uh, fairly significant. If we just do what they suggest, we should be fine. Well, the things they suggest are constantly changing as the evidence changes. Eat with the grain of your ancestors and you'll be fine. That's, that's an opinion, but there's no evidence for that. You might have to live in medical slavery dependent on some kind of medication to string out miserable lives along. Well, for example, diabetics, you could take away their insulin and they would die. Right? So I know, I know diabetics who have gotten to live decades and decades and decades of productive, high-quality lives because of medications like insulin. So I, I don't see you know, what's, what's wrong with insulin. There are certain people who need insulin every day. Additives, artificial colors, prepackaged junk. Yeah, but we don't have any strong evidence that that's uh, killing people early. You may emotionally not like it. You may find it aesthetically displeasing and you may have theories that this is killing people early and making them really obese but we don't particularly have much evidence. Okay, fine, we can't eradicate cancer, but what about eradicating feminism? No, we can't eradicate feminism either because uh, different groups will have incentives to uh, seek out their own group's best interests. So feminism wants to increase female choices and decrease male choices, particularly with regard to sexuality. 
maybe those people who are diabetic, maybe they should just eat healthier and exercise. Yeah, but there are millions and millions and millions of people who are diabetic who, even if they ate healthier and exercise, they would still be diabetic, and without insulin, they would die. So, uh, many people, their lives will significantly improve if they exercise, but uh, exercise is not going to cure all health challenges. Bye-bye.